Would you join me in the book of Jeremiah? We're going to start in chapter 18, and we're going to get into chapter 19 today, all right? Uh, We wrapped up our series on the Bible last week, The Thoughts of God. We asked the questions, what is the Bible? Where did it come from? How was it delivered to us? Uh, Is it trustworthy? And is it complete? And we looked at those questions and we found answers to all of those questions. And now we're going to move into a brand new series, which I believe really is a spiritual successor to that last series. Uh, And the name of this series is called Hot Potatoes. Now that's kind of a silly name for a sermon series, all right? Uh, How many of you uh, remember playing games when you were a kid. Uh, I was just talking to my seven-year-old daughter the other day. She was describing some of the fun things that they do in children's ministry. And I was recalling what that was like to be in children's ministry. I remember playing games as a child in church. And it occurred to me that we probably don't play the same games in church today uh, that I did when I was a kid eons ago in children's ministry. In fact, how many of you remember Red Rover? Okay, yeah, AKA uh, church lawsuit game, right? You remember this? Everybody holds hands on one side, they hold hands on the other side, they call out, Red Rover, Red Rover, let Jimmy come over, Jimmy comes charging like a bull, and you're trying to not break the chain, and Jimmy's trying to bust that chain. I've seen a few broken arms in my day playing Red Rover. And then, of course, there's, there's hot potato. Play hot potato, you get in a circle, You got the music playing, you have a ball or something like that, that represents the hot potato and you gotta keep that thing moving. You don't wanna hold on to the hot potato because if you're holding the hot potato when the music stops, you're out of the game. You gotta get rid of it quick. You get it and then you release it. Folks, I believe that the church today is playing hot potato with any number of relatively controversial subjects that come across our line of sight. Churches will touch on an issue that is a rather sensitive issue and then they'll get rid of it and they'll move on as quickly as they can. They might speak to it, but they won't linger on it because if they linger on it, odds are they're gonna offend somebody because these are the hot potato issues. They are sensitive, they are controversial, they create enemies out of friends. People get very emotional about these things and society has dictated that we ought to believe one way and the church doesn't necessarily wanna buck the trend, so to speak, and so they don't talk about it very much if they talk about it at all. Well, folks, in this series, we're going to take hold of some hot potatoes. We're going to grab those spuds with both hands, and we're going to rip the tinfoil off of them, and we're going to dig in there, and we're going to see what's going on, and we're going to do it through the lens of Scripture. Because as we come out of this series on the Bible where we have learned that the Bible is not only inspired and inerrant and reliable and complete, but we're going to move into this and we're going to look at modern issues and we're going to see that the Bible is also relevant. How many of you believe that the Bible is relevant to everything that we go through today? And so when we look at issues, we want to stop and ask, what does the Bible say? That ought to be our very first stop. And so I'm going to begin this series tonight with perhaps one of the hottest of all potatoes, okay? Uh, There are uh, several atrocities that have occurred in human history. In fact, if you were to do a Google search on that, no doubt you would see reference to the Holocaust, and you would learn about uh, the, the killing fields of Cambodia, and you would find reference to perhaps the Stalinist regime of the old Soviet Union in which millions lost their lives. 
But there is an atrocity that has taken place on our soil here in America. And everything that I just uttered, if you were to compare them to what has gone on right here, I believe that they would pale by comparison. In 1973, which happens to be the year that I was born, that's not the atrocity, by the way. (laughs) The Supreme Court issued a landmark ruling uh, on a case called Roe v. Wade. And of course, the outcome of this case was that they ruled that abortion would be legal in all 50 states. This happened about seven months before I was born, which means uh, that I am among the first generation whose mothers could kill us in the womb. Now, I'm grateful that my mom did not do that. But I want to share some statistics with you just to kind of put this in perspective. Based on uh, the latest state-level data... In, uh, in 2020, approximately 908,000 abortions took place in the United States. That was up from the year before, which was up from the year before that. In 2019, approximately 19% of all U.S. pregnancies ended in abortion. And according to uh, the UN in 2013, there were only nine nations that had a higher abortion rate than the United States. In 2018... Our largest city, New York City, the Big Apple, there were approximately 31% of all pregnancies that ended in abortion. Now, what makes this relevant and and particularly sensitive right now is recent events regarding Roe v. Wade. If you were paying attention over the last year, you know that the current Supreme Court ruled that Roe v. Wade was, in fact, unconstitutional, and they overturned it. And to that I say unequivocally, hallelujah. All right? Yes, there were some churches that that were rather silent in the aftermath of that. I believe that that is something worth rejoicing over. That said, uh, overturning Roe v. Wade did not make abortion illegal across the land. It did not eradicate it. It simply made it a matter of states' rights. And so some states that were more progressive sought to codify the right to abortion in their own state. New York certainly did that. Not to be outdone, the state that I moved here from, California, just this past November, they voted on a bill. I voted against this bill, but it passed. AB 2223, And not only did it make it legal abortion across all stages of pregnancy right up to the moment of birth, it also made it illegal to prosecute someone for causing the death of a newborn. Let me say that again. It made it illegal to prosecute someone for causing the death of a newborn, not a baby in the womb, a fully formed, delivered human child. This is... This is the world that we live in, folks. And so this continues to be a dark plague on our society. And and the grand grotesque tally of all of this is that since 1973, 64 million babies have been aborted in the United States. Some of you may say, Pastor Scott, why are you getting political? Listen to me, this is not political. This is not political. This is a moral issue. I am interested in politics. I love to talk about politics. I stay informed on that. Anybody who knows me knows that I don't, uh, you know, I, I, I will wear that on my sleeve in person. I don't endorse any party. In fact, I really could care less what your party is. I don't give a rip if you're a Republican or a Democrat here tonight because your party should not drive your beliefs. It should be the other way around. 
And what should drive your beliefs is the word of God, amen? And so that's what we wanna look at first. I don't, want, I don't want you walking away from here taking a position because I took it. I don't want you walking away uh, opposing a position because I took it. I don't want you to take a position because Ben Shapiro takes it or Donald Trump or Bill Maher or Whoopi Goldberg. That's some weird company right there. <laughs> but here's what I wanna say. I'm gonna say some things that there may be some of you that, that these things will upset you. You may want to leave. You may want to get up and walk out. Let me ask you not to do that. Let me encourage you to sit through this message to the very end. Because here's my commitment to you. I promise that I will let the Bible have the final word. You will not hear my opinion. I am going to uh, open the word of God and we're going to look at this together. And we're going to see what God has to say because he is the author of all life. Should we not care what he thinks about it? All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray your blessing upon our time here tonight. We wanna be of humble heart as we open the word, God. Speak to us, Lord. Speak to us in a time that is confusing and often filled with a, a cacophony of different voices on different matters. Speak clearly. May we hear you tonight. In, in the Lord's name we pray, amen. We start in Jeremiah 18 in verse one. It says, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, arise and go down to the potter's house and there I will let you hear my words. So here we've got a very unusual situation. A prophet was somebody uh, that the Lord would say, go deliver a message. And here we've got Jeremiah, the Lord's prophet, and he's not telling him to deliver a message. He's telling him, go somewhere and you will receive a message. And he's sending him to the potter's house. Now, in those days, they did not have TJ Maxx. They did not have Target. And some of you shoppers are like, that's the real atrocity right there. But they had the potter. Now, the potter was responsible for all the things that you needed, all the cups and the bowls and the, the containers and, and the saucers and, and the, uh, you know, all, all of the lamps and the pots and, and all of the things. The potter was where you went to get all this stuff. And so God is telling Jeremiah to go to the potter. Every major town had a potter. Jerusalem was the largest town in the region, and they certainly had one. And there, God was going to show his prophet something in the imagery of the potter's house, in, in the image of a potter and clay. And we see that throughout scripture. There are many different images that God uses to convey ideas about his relationship with us. And you can come up with some off the top of your head. He is our father, we are his children. Christ is the bridegroom, we're the bride. Uh, you know, he's the shepherd, we're the sheep. And of course, he's the potter and we're the clay. And so we're gonna peek ahead here and look at verse five where it says, then the word of the Lord came to me. Jeremiah says, oh, house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord? Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. You're like clay in my hand. Jeremiah, incidentally, not the first prophet uh, to talk about this imagery. Before him was Isaiah. And we read in Isaiah 64, but now, O oh Lord, you are our father, we are the clay. You are our potter, we are all work of your hand. And so with that imagery in mind, with that metaphor in mind, I want you to look here in chapter 18, and I'm gonna give you the first section of your notes. It's a biblical view of life. A biblical view of life. 
And look at verse three. It says, so I went down to the potter's house and he was working at his wheel. And so picture the potter there at the wheel. Now fear not as he's molding and pouring water on it. His hands are sifting through that clay, pumping that wheel. I'm not about to reenact the scene from the movie Ghost. So don't worry, you know, with, with Patrick Swayze to me more. That would be a little too hot for church. But I will say that when I drop my oldest son off at college, he, he goes to school in Branson, Missouri. They have in Branson a, uh, a theme park called Silver Dollar City. Has anybody ever been to Silver Dollar City? Wow, okay, all right. So you know it's got kind of an old world vibe. It harkens back to yesteryear. It kind of feels like the 1880s as you're walking through this theme park and you hit some of the shops on the main drag. They've got uh, a candle maker. They've got a glass blower. They got a blacksmith. And they have a potter. And so you go in and there he is and he's at the wheel and he, that wheel's pumping, he's, he's spinning that thing and he's working that clay and he's pouring the water and he's crafting it and eventually he's gonna put it in the kiln and he's talking as he does this and you just recognize all of the artistry and the precision and the, the uh, steadiness and the foresight that goes into that and I imagine that Jeremiah was marveling as he beheld uh, the artistic nature of this craftsman. And what we learn as we view that image in your notes, first of all, is that each human life is the product of God's handiwork. You are by design. God had a purpose for you. He fashioned you uh, just like the clay had no say in what it would become. That was all what the potter decided to do with the clay. You had no say in your birth. You had no say in where you were born. You had no say to whom you were born. You had no say in your physicality. You had no say in your musculature or your height. I have pondered these things. You, you had no say who your parents were. Some of you were born to godly parents. Some of you were born in a very difficult family situation. Some of you didn't even know your folks. But know this, no matter what your situation was, you're not an accident. You are not a mistake. You are by design and God fashioned you and you are wanted by God. Do you understand that? I need you to understand that above all tonight. In Psalm 139, it says, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Uh, wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, uh, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. I love the artistry described here. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. And I love this. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there were none of them. Did you know God has a book and you're in it? You are in his book. And he so designed you that all of the days that you would ever live before day one came and went, he detailed them in his book. That's how much design went into you. We are created in the image and the likeness of our Father in heaven. And that means that every birth is miraculous. Every birth is miraculous. When a single sperm unites with a single egg and uh, conception begins and a single cell is produced and then that cell divides and divides and divides until you have a human body with 70 trillion cells. 70 trillion cells. In your brain, you have 100 billion cells. Now, some of you may have a few less. You know, because of choices made back in the day, you know? 
That's a different kind of pot. But you are by design. You got 206 bones, you got 600 muscles, you've got 93,000 miles of blood vessels in your body. And so that, that didn't happen by chance, amen? And we read on a verse four, it says, and the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand, and he reworked it into another vessel. And what we see here in your notes is that each human life is given purpose by God. There is a purpose. We, we, we see the, the clay, uh, Jeremiah witnesses it getting ruined on the wheel. It's, it's spoiled, it says. And yet, what does he do? Does he throw it away? Have you ever seen a lump of clay as a potter is working that wheel and he's shaping it? Sometimes things go awry. Sometimes it falls over, gets a little lopsided, gets a little out of shape, huh? Does he take it and just toss it and start over? No, he, he works with that clay. He reshapes it, reworks it. Do you ever get bent out of shape? Have you ever gotten jacked up in life? You ever gotten messed up? You ever made mistakes? God throw you away? No, he doesn't give up on you. He does not abandon you. He keeps working on you, keeps reshaping you. Now that could be a little painful sometimes because we're hard to work with, but he doesn't give up. And he's got a purpose in mind for you. And he's eventually going to fashion you like he wants you. And then he's going to put you through the fire. And the fire can be uncomfortable too. But the purpose of the fire is to finish what he started. And he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. All right? And so we see that we've got a purpose in God. And so he's expressed his love for us in our design. And Jeremiah says that this happened as it seemed good to the potter to do. And that teaches us another lesson. It seemed good to the potter. In your notes, each human life is valuable to God. This was in accordance with his will. He saw value there. He determines value. God is the one who determines value. Others may look at you and they don't see value. God sees value because your value is derived from his work, all right? You, you ever heard the expression, one man's trash is another man's treasure? Not everybody sees the same value, but sometimes that value is inherent. It doesn't matter what people see, it's still there. I heard a story about a man in 1998 up in Michigan. He bought a farm and he showed up on that farm and the previous owner was on the way out and this man had noticed this large rock that was used as a doorstop at this farmhouse. And it was kind of an odd color and it looked very heavy. And he finally asked the previous owner, he said, uh, what, what, what's with that rock? And he said, oh, that thing. Yeah, that's been in our family for, for generations. Why, we found that on the property back in the 30s and uh, well, we just always used it as a doorstop. And he said, but you know, that's, that's part of the property so that's, that's yours now. And so the guy moved in and every day he went out that door and he noticed that rock and he thought, you know, that is a really peculiar rock. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I wonder what kind of rock that is. I'm gonna have that examined. He called the University of Central Michigan. He had a geologist examine the rock. She called him back. She was very excited. She said, this is the most valuable specimen I've ever come across. He said, what do you mean? She said, well, it's no ordinary rock. It's a meteorite. She said, it is 22 pounds. That makes it the sixth largest meteorite in state history. It's 88.5% it's iron and 11.5% nickel. And the guy had it evaluated and it was estimated to be worth over $100,000. Isn't that something? Others saw a rock. 
a doorstop. People may look at you and think, that guy's just a doorstop. God says, no, that's priceless right there because of what I have invested in him. Ephesians 2.10, we've studied this in our Ephesians study on Sunday, for we are his workmanship, is what it says, poema is the word for workmanship. That means work of art. When you go to a museum, you look at art on the wall, what is it that gives that art worth? It's the signature on the bottom. Now, you know, to each his own. I look at some modern art and I think, man, my seven-year-old can do that. My seven-year-old can do better than that. But my seven-year-old's name is not Jackson Pollock. It's not Pablo Picasso, you see. And that's where the worth comes from. You have a signature of a creator in whose image you are made. That is where your worth comes from. It doesn't come from anything else. So God is consistent in this and how much he values us. And his value for life goes far beyond uh, our criteria for value. And in this life debate, in this issue of abortion, Some people are pro-choice. They have chosen that pro-choice position uh, because they've bought into some lies. And one of the lies that people buy into is the lie of evolution. And they don't believe that we are here because we're designed. They don't believe that there's a creator at work. They believe that we are here by random chance. It's just pure happenstance, natural selection. We just kind of crawled out of the primordial ooze a million or more years ago, and here we are. And if you believe that, if you think that everything about you and everybody around you is just happenstance, then your value of life is going to go down. And it would be no problem for you to be pro-choice if you don't value life. And I I also think that we often attach some erroneous criteria to the whole abortion debate by asking the question, well, when does life begin? And we try to define the terms of that argument based on when life originates. Maybe you've engaged in a conversation like that. And if you're pro-life and somebody says, well, when does life begin? Usually the answer that you'd give, the traditional answer is, well, life begins at the moment of conception. See, you all know the word. Conception. It it, it begins at the moment of conception. Is that true? Well, if you're pro-choice, when does it begin? Uh, Traditionally, they, they used to say it began at the moment of birth which means you could terminate pregnancy all the way up to birth. And then there's a third view that says, well, no, life begins at the moment of viability. It's whenever that fetus can be sustained outside the womb. Is it viable? And I think that perceptions of that, opinions about that have shifted over the years with the advancement of technology. Now we can see more clearly what's going on inside that womb. We have the technology to sustain life at a much earlier state in the gestation period outside uh, the womb. But where does God land among those three categories? I submit to you, my friends, that God does not land in any of those camps. He goes back even further. What does he say to the prophet? Jeremiah 1, verse 5, he says to Jeremiah, before, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. I knew you before And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. God starts long before birth, long before viability, long even before conception. He dispenses with all our human benchmarks in his value of life. He had a plan and a purpose for Jeremiah 
He knew him. He set him apart. He appointed him as a prophet before he was even a glint in his daddy's eye. And he did the same thing for you. God is for life. Christian, I don't see, if you are a Christian and you believe the scriptures, I don't see how you have any choice but to be pro-life. God is for life. He created it, he values it, and he doesn't care about all our human benchmarks. And so he is consistent in all of this. You know what's not consistent? Human laws. Human laws are inconsistent. Now, I moved here from Modesto, California. You may not have ever heard of Modesto, California before you heard of me. I don't know. You know, it is known for a few things. Modesto happens to be the birthplace of George Lucas. And so without Modesto, there may not have been Star Wars, all right? Uh, It's also infamous for the Lacey Peterson murder case. So if you're a true crime buff, you know about uh, the murder of Lacey Peterson. She was a, uh, a sweet little housewife. She went missing on Christmas Eve, early 2000s. Her husband was suspected of foul play, and eventually he was, in fact, convicted of her murder. Now, Scott Peterson, the husband, was charged with how many murders? Two. Why? Because Lacey was pregnant. Now, this is California, all right? If you go into a convenience store in California to rob it and something goes wrong and you shoot the person behind the desk there and it's a woman and she's pregnant and she dies, you're on the hook for two deaths. And yet in California, you can go into an abortion clinic as a woman and they can remove a baby from you piece by piece and you are within your legal rights in that state. Now explain to me how that makes any sense whatsoever. That is the definition of inconsistency right there. Why would abortion be legal and morally acceptable in a state like California when a person can be convicted of murdering an unborn child? It would seem as though we're attaching a criterion to the whole matter of the baby's wantedness. That we say, as long as the baby's wanted, then it has worth then it has value. Let me make this very clear. God wants all children. All children. Every life is precious. Well, here's where it gets a little heavy. I'm gonna give you now a biblical view on abortion. We've talked about life, how he sees it. What is the biblical view on abortion? Look at chapter 19 with me. In verse one, thus says the Lord, go, Buy a potter's earthenware flask and take some of the elders of the people, some of the elders of the priests, and go out to the valley of the son of Hinnom at the entry of the potsherd gate and proclaim there the words that I will tell you. And so this pottery imagery extends into chapter 19. And so Jeremiah is instructed to buy a pot. He's at the potter's house. God says, buy a pot. Take it now to this place called the valley of the son of Hinnom or Ben-Hinnom, as it is uh, uh, displayed in your Bible sometimes. And God gives him a rather stark message to relay to the people there, and it's a message of judgment. We read in verse three, he says, you shall say, hear the word of the Lord, O kings of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I am bringing such disaster upon this place that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. Well, that doesn't sound good. That does not sound good. This is obviously a message of wrath. What in the world is going on in the valley of the son of Hinnom to incur the wrath of God? Well, let me tell you about this place. 
Ben Hinnom is a place outside of Jerusalem. There's a Greek name for it, and that Greek word is Gehenna. And you see that word throughout some of the Gospels, and it is used by Jesus himself to refer to hell, Gehenna. And in fact, in uh, Matthew 9, he uses it to, to describe hell, a place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now, liberal scholars today will tell you, and, and they will say, well, there's no such place as hell. Hell does not exist because what we see in English in the New Testament as hell is, is, is supposed to be this word, Gehenna. Gehenna was a literal geographic place. In fact, it was right outside Jerusalem and it was the Jerusalem city dump. It was the place where everybody dumped their garbage, their refuse, their animal carcasses, all of that stuff. And and animals would come and they would fight over all of that refuse. Hence all the lingo about the gnashing of teeth and the burning and the worm never dying. But hell is not real. God would never send anybody to a place of eternal punishment. And what we think of as hell, if you do a little research, it's just this geographic location that happened to be a garbage dump. Now, They're right that it was a literal place. Gehenna was a literal geographic place. And they're right that at one point it was, in fact, a garbage dump. But they're wrong to say that hell does not exist. The eternal place called hell is referred to by this New Testament word, Gehenna, that that was the name of a literal place. They used that name to refer to this eternal place to communicate what sort of place hell is. Because the earthly place, Gehenna, was not originally a garbage dump. In fact, something far more atrocious took place there. Look at verse four. The Lord says, because the people have forsaken me and have profaned this place by making offerings in it to other gods whom neither they nor their fathers nor the kings of Judah have known. You see, the people of Judah had forsaken God. They had rebelled against him. They had turned to idols. They had adopted the idols of all the pagan cultures that surrounded them. And, and they had a multitude of gods, false gods, that these other peoples worshipped. And the general name for those false gods was the name Baal. And so there were, there were many, many Baals, and one of the chief Baals that they would worship was the god of the Ammonites called Molech, also known as Milcom, and it was a grotesque bull-headed god. And so in this valley of the son of Hinnom, the, the idolatrous Jews worshipped Molech, and they constructed this hideous metallic Statue. It was seated, it had the head of a bull, and it had arms outstretched, palms facing upward, and in the belly of this metal statue was an oven. And they would start a fire in the belly of Molech, and they would get that fire roaring until that whole statue was red hot. And then these idolatrous, rebellious Israelites would bring their innocent babies and they would lay them in the red-hot hands of this metal statue and watch them be incinerated as a sacrifice to this demonic pagan deity. And they would do this 
out of a sense of worship. This is how low it got in Israel's history. And this was not just a one-time thing. It started in the days of Solomon and it lasted for 300 years. 300 years this went on. Among the, the covenant people of God in a nation that God instituted with descendants of a man with whom God made a covenant. And folks, we've got this sort of thing going on today in America in a seemingly much more clinical fashion, okay? And so in your notes, what I want you to understand is that abortion is rooted in idolatry. It's rooted in idolatry. You say, whoa, 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 whoa. I mean, okay, you crossed a line now. People today don't worship Molech. Listen, we've got all kinds of idols that we worship. We worship all kinds of, some people abort their children on the altar of sexual freedom. That's their God. They want sex without consequences. Some people abort their children on the altar of career. Their career is their God. I was watching an award show a few years ago and I saw this actress win an award and instead of thanking her husband or her family or her God, she thanked her abortionist for giving her the opportunity to thrive as an actress. This is how dark it has become in our world. Some people abort their children because they worship self. And they put convenience first, or pride first, or reputation. Some involved in the industry of abortion, and it is an industry. They do it for money, they worship money. Money is their God. The family planning and abortion clinic industry increased over five years at an annualized rate of 2.5% to $3.4 billion in 2021. Money is a God to many. In fact, when Roe v. Wade was about to be overturned, I heard the Secretary of the Treasury, Janet Yellen, say that she opposed the decision because it might hurt the economy. What are we, what are we doing? What are we doing? Verse four goes on, says, and because they have filled this place with the blood of innocence, innocence, and have built the high places of Baal to burn their sons in the fire as a burnt offering to Baal, which I did not command or decree, nor did it come into my mind. He says, the blood of innocence. You know what it's called when innocent blood is spilled? There's a word for that. And in your notes, my friend, there's no other way to say it. Abortion is murder. It is murder. There's no nice way to put it. There's no sanitized way to put it. These people would offer their children like this, laying them in, in, in the scalding arms of this demon God. And you say, how could anybody do such a thing? Folks, we've been doing it legally for 50 years in America. You say, wow, that, that place was evil. It does sound like hell. Oh, make no mistake. The atrocity performed there is not the only reason it's equated with hell. In fact, I would say it's a secondary reason. The primary reason that the word Gehenna is used to refer to the eternal place called hell is because hell is a place of judgment. And this place would become that as well. Look at verse six. It says, therefore, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, and when this place shall no, be, uh, shall no more be called Tophet, or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. The valley of slaughter. It says in this verse, it was called tofet. You know what tofet means? The root word is tof. Tof means drum. If you're wondering how parents could stand there and endure the shrieking and the screams of burning children, 
They had these massive drums that they would beat in that valley. And the sound of the drums would drown out the cries of those sacrificed. And these drums would whip up these idolaters into a frenzy. And they they had already committed to the moment. They had made their decision and they committed this sacrifice and they were given over completely to this cultic practice and rather than recognize the, the horror of what they were doing, they filled their ears with the beat of these drums drowning out what they should have recognized as abhorrent. And today we've got an activity going on in America and around the world that we ought to recognize as abhorrent but we drown it out with various drum beats. And in your notes, I want to list a few. The first drum beat is the drum beat of body autonomy. Well, a woman has a right to her own body. I understand the concept of body autonomy. I totally get that. I understand that concept. Here's the problem. That ain't one body. That's two. There are two bodies. There's another body. There is another body in there with a separate genetic code from that of the mother. There's a second individual in this scenario and that individual has no voice. Where's that individual's body autonomy? We got a drumbeat of victimization. It's often presented in terms of, you know, women need an abortion because otherwise they'd be victims of, of men. Often you hear this argument that we need abortion in cases of rape and incest. And listen, I think these are conversations worth having. You can, you can listen to voice. Many children are born with genetic defects. Oh, oh, I see. And, and you're qualified to determine who gets to live or who gets to die based on those defects. Is that right? Am I understanding that right? Listen to me. You're defective. I'm defective. We're all defective in some way uh, according to human terms. But who are you to determine the worth of a life? Who are you to decide whether it's justifiable uh, to abort in order to eliminate cost or, or, or a, a hardship, etc.? when that is a decision that should be God's alone? We hear the drumbeat of contraception. Some people say, well, a woman might experience failure of her contraceptive and she needs a backup. Murder is not a backup. Murder is not a backup. We got the drumbeat of, oh, I love this, population control. Too many mouths to feed, too many people in this world, too much strain on the environment. You know what the Bible says about population control? Zero, nada, says nothing about that. You know what it does say? Be fruitful and multiply. It says fill the earth. It says, children are a heritage from the Lord. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with the arrows that are children. And we hear all these drums pounding away so as to mute the reality of abortion and the silent screams of the unborn sacrificed to idols like self and pride and guilt and money and and, uh, ambition and career. And the name of this place, according to God, that we're reading about in Jeremiah, will be called the Valley of Slaughter. And what's going to happen is described in verses 7 through 9. He basically goes through and he explains uh, there's going to be 
uh, chaos and bloodshed. Historically, this did indeed play out. Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came in. They destroyed, they demolished, they, they enslaved, they eviscerated, they profaned. And they carried off multitudes into exile in Babylon. And those who were left behind were so destitute and they fell under a curse that was already pronounced back in Deuteronomy 28. And what I want you to see in your notes, and this is very important, is that abortion, which was the sin of that generation, abortion is worthy of judgment. It deserves it. It deserves, God takes the spilling of innocent blood very, very seriously. And in fact, historically, the people left behind in Judah were so destitute that some of them resorted to cannibalism, they ate their own offspring. God gave them over to the practices, the hideousness that they engaged in. And we read in verse 10, it says, then you, talking to the prophet, you shall break the flask, the, the, the piece of pottery, Jeremiah, that you will have bought and brought into this valley. He says, you shall break the flask in the sight of the men who go with you and shall say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, so I will break this people and this city as one breaks a potter's vessel so that it can never be mended. God is taking the image of the pottery that he used before to illustrate the value of human life, his beloved creation, the preciousness of what he has designed and found. He's saying, I want you to take that pottery into this valley of sin and degradation. I want you to smash it, shatter it into a million pieces. You might say, Pastor Scott, are you saying, are you trying to say that this is going to happen to America? I mean, isn't this text about about Judah? This isn't America. Listen, I, I understand America is not Judah. America is not Israel. But God didn't merely judge Israel throughout history. In fact, in the Bible alone, we see God judging many, many peoples. We see ancient Egypt and Babylon and, and Assyria. We see the Philistines being judged by God. We see the Amalekites. We see the Ammonites. We see Sodom and Gomorrah. We see Moab. We see the Edomites. We see Tyre. We see Sidon. The list goes on. God's wrath, God's righteousness, he will, be he will not be mocked. He will be a, a God of justice. Why would we be so arrogant as to think that God would never touch America? We've only been here since 1776. That's nothing in the scope of history, and yet we've managed to kill 64 million babies. It's easy to read these stories and dismiss them and chalk them up to uneducated, primitive, uncivilized peoples who would resort to doing such an evil thing, uh, you know, but, but, but we're different, are we? I don't believe that we are because we've got a modern version of it. We call it choice. We've sanitized it. And it began in 1973 when seven out of nine men in black robes decided it was okay. But I want you to know something. There's another side to this coin I've laid some pretty heavy truth on you tonight, but I, I, I desperately, deeply want to convey this. And I mean this from the bottom of my heart. In your notes, abortion can be forgiven upon repentance. It can be forgiven upon repentance. You need to know that. In a church of this size, I'm not naive enough to think that no one here 
has been touched by abortion. Perhaps you have had an abortion. Or perhaps you're a man who has been involved in a decision to have an abortion. I'm not letting the guys off the hook either. There have been many men who have coerced, who have encouraged their significant other to have an abortion because they didn't want a kid. So you, you both have culpability in a decision like this, but you need to understand something. That if you own it and you, you, you confess this to the Lord, Scripture says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that is a promise to the saved, okay? So if you have trusted Christ, you can confess sin and he will forgive. If you have never trusted Christ, you need to turn your life over to him right now because you are living in a state of sin that needs to be forgiven. And you need to own the reality of your situation to say, I confess that I am lost and I am trusting in what Jesus did for my eternity and I want to give my life over and follow you right now. But you may be here, you may say, Pastor Scott, I've had an abortion. Where does this leave me tonight? If you are guilty of the sin of abortion, you have the opportunity to be forgiven. If that's something you've already put before the Lord, you've confessed that, you are forgiven. You are forgiven. He does not want you to wallow in the guilt of that moment. If you have already confessed this and, and asked God to forgive you for it, God's will is that you not be racked with guilt the rest of your days. He wants you to have victory. He wants you to find freedom over this. Do you understand that? We are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. He wants you to live forgiven because the greatest verse in all the Bible, in my humble opinion, is Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You need to understand something. If you will humble yourself and you will, you will lay yourself before this, this God of justice, but also love, he will forgive you. He will forgive you. He is the potter. You are the clay. The potter does not abandon the clay. We get spoiled by decisions that we make. That includes abortion. But he can reshape you. He can remake you because the potter loves the clay. And he has a purpose for your life. I'm going to invite our prayer team to come down to the front right now. And I want to ask you, if you would, to bow your head at this moment. A lot of people in this room tonight, a lot of backstories, a lot of tough situations, a lot of difficult decisions made, some of them the wrong decision. But we have a God of the second chance. And so if you're there tonight and you, you've been tormented by this, I'd like you to, to put it under the blood of Jesus tonight. And if, by the way, if you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, this is the night. This is tonight. Because if you've never trusted Christ as Savior, you have a much bigger problem. There's an eternity at stake. He died for you. He paid the ultimate price for you. It's a free gift. You can't earn it. You just receive it. You acknowledge your situation, and you recognize that he 
is who he says he is and what he did for you. Would you trust him as your savior tonight? Dear Heavenly Father, I pray for these tonight in this place. May they pray along with me in this moment who have never believed, who have never embraced the free gift. May they say to you now in their hearts where they sit, dear Lord, I am but a sinner. I understand that I can't earn your favor. I'm guilty. Whether it's of abortion or something else, Lord, I need you. I need your forgiveness. I need your grace. And I am receiving that and trusting in what you've done for me right now for my eternity. I want to follow you. My life is yours. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.